Hi, I'm Theo Ciasat. I'm Rikbini Banerjee. And welcome to the third episode of La Opresión de la Gente. We're being sponsored by the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies, and we'd like to especially thank Professor Terrell Jones for his continuous support for our work. Last episode, we interviewed Professor Gabriel Hetland, Professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino Studies at the University of Albany, and today we'll be interviewing him on his expertise in contemporary Venezuelan politics and the history of U.S. intervention in uh, Venezuelan politics. We hope you enjoy. So Hugo Chavez has often been described as by American politicians as a communist dictator. Um, Condoleezza Rice, in a testimony in 2009, actually said that Chavez was, quote, destroying his own country with his populist policies. So I guess to kick us off, how much do you think U.S. foreign policy has impacted the vilification of and sentiment towards Venezuela in the United States? Yeah, I think that the demonization of Chavez, um, who was an immensely popular leader in his time, who implemented policies that had certainly negative effects, but also had positive effects. I mean, if you look at the record, it's impossible to sort of ignore the tremendously positive effects of many of Chavez's policies. So U.S. policy has been to demonize him almost from the first. I mean, I think, it, you know, if there's a starting point for that, it might be the fall of 2001 when the war in Afghanistan was starting after the 9-11 attacks. Chavez was one of the few leaders in the world who called Bush Jr. out uh, for the policy and said, you know, this should not be happening. The U.S. does not have the right to kill innocent people in Afghanistan, regardless of what happened. He was sympathetic to the attacks on the Twin Towers and the loss of life in the U.S., but he was unequivocal that the U.S. did not have a right to respond in the way it did. And from that point on, you know, in a pretty open way, the U.S. were very hostile towards Chavez. So I think U.S. foreign policy has certainly played a very important role in fostering this image of Chavez as a, you know, a dictator. And it, it doesn't match the reality within Venezuela, which is a complicated reality. I mean, I think if you look at the mess that Venezuela is in now, it's impossible to give Chavez an A+. I mean, there's uh, many problems that his administration inherited and failed to resolve. Uh, the long-standing, you know, century-long standing dependence on oil was not resolved by any means under Chavez. Problems of corruption were not resolved. There's very specific policies having to do with currency in Venezuela, which have a lot to do with the current economic crisis and certainly the origins of the current economic crisis. So there's a lot to criticize about Chavez. And there's, you know, on the democratic front, highly imperfect. I mean, there was a, uh, a real assault on judicial independence starting in 2004. Um, but a lot of the critiques of, about Chavez are, in my view, incredibly overblown and sometimes just outright ridiculous and false. So there's claims that there was fraud in Venezuelan elections. But if you look at what happened in elections over and over again, um, until relatively recently when the charge of fraud has some teeth to it. But under Chavez, Jimmy Carter actually ran election observations and he said the electoral process in Venezuela is the best in the world. Those are Jimmy Carter's words. And he had reviewed, you know, 80 some processes around the world. And he said Venezuela's process was technically the best in the world. And they had a process where they, you know, gave everyone, it was electronic voting, but there was a paper record of every single vote. The voter would look at the paper record, then put it in a box. Over 50% of all ballots were manually recounted right afterwards. So there was a sort of manual audit of all the ballots. So it's incredibly difficult to commit fraud. And there's no evidence that there was any, you know, real fraud in the years that Chavez was in power. 
and there's evidence he was elected in these you know, technically free elections over and over again by huge margins. I mean, his biggest margin in 2006 was close to 30 points. And then even in 2012, right before he died of cancer, he was elected by 11 points margin compared to the second place finisher. And, you know, people will say, you know, either there was fraud, which there wasn't, or the people of Venezuela were duped. Well, if they were duped, they were duped by policies that reduced poverty by about 50%. They reduced uh, extreme poverty by like three-fourths from like 2003 till the end of Chavez's presidency. They made Venezuela the most equal country in Latin America. They created thousands of participatory structures, all of which are complicated, all of which are flawed, all of which are contradictory, but they really existed. And so I you know, spent significant time in both Bolivia and Venezuela from, in Venezuela from 2007 up until 2016. And over and over again, I was impressed by the resilience of the people, by their you know, capacity to engage in direct participatory democracy. And certainly in the earlier period, you know, through 2011, um, when I was doing fieldwork for my dissertation and now a book I'm finishing, you could just tell Chavez was very, very popular. And he was popular because the policies that he implemented were helping Venezuelans. Um, they were leading to much better nutrition for Venezuelans. They were leading to higher levels of education and educational access. They were leading to a huge increase in the number of pensioners. So there was just overwhelming evidence that you know, there was many positive impacts. That doesn't mean, again, just to emphasize it, that there were not negative impacts at the same time. There were. Uh, but to simply ignore all of the positive achievements gives you a very, very distorted view of what was happening in Venezuela and a very distorted view of who Hugo Chavez was. Yeah, I think you you definitely like outlined the fact that like, especially when you're looking at how Venezuela has come to the specific crisis that it is in now, it's not entirely apparent that like that was due to Hugo Chavez. In fact, some would say it's not apparent at all that like that was single-handedly his efforts. Um, it seems like U.S. intervention and just like a lot of external factors had a lot to do with that. Um, but that's not really the rhetoric that you hear in the United States. A lot of people say what is occurring in Venezuela right now is due to, quote unquote, the failings of socialism in the country. I mean, in your article that you published in 2016 titled Why is Venezuela in Crisis? You touch upon the effects that U.S. sanctions have had on the economy, how that has resulted in a lot of issues in the country. To what extent do you think that U.S. sanctions have had a clear impact on making Venezuela come to the point that it is in today and just U.S. intervention in general? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the U.S. tried to overthrow Chavez in 2002, um, and that led to, I mean, the U.S. supported an effort. They weren't alone in doing it. There was Venezuelans in the military and elite Venezuelans who wanted to overthrow him. So I think we should you know, never think it's just the U.S., but the U.S. has certainly supported very right-wing anti-democratic elements. Um, and then there was a series of other attempts to get rid of the Chavez administration. There was an oil lockout or oil strike between 2002 and 2003. There was a referendum against Chavez. The U.S. funded all of these efforts very, very openly trying to get, openly and not so openly. I mean, there was a lot of covert money as well, trying to get Chavez out of office. And so this led to certain policies, including a <clears throat> policy that sort of fixed the currency and established capital controls, which made it hard to you know, take capital out of Venezuela, which made a lot of sense. I mean, there was a real risk of capital flight in 2002, 2003, 4, 5. But the Chavez administration maintained those policies for, you know, maybe a decade or so after um, Chavez and Maduro, his successor, elected successor, I should say, because he's often seen as, you know, just a usurper, but he was actually elected, which we can talk about. 
although I don't see him as democratic anymore. But anyway, the you know Chavez administration implemented these currency controls in response to U.S.-backed efforts to overthrow him. And the currency controls are a complicated but very important reason for the economic crisis that Venezuela is uh, in right now. Basically, they led to you know huge amounts of corruption within Venezuela. Um, they led to declining production. They led to shortages of goods, a whole series of problems. So that's one thing. But it, you know, it, it's a Chavez policy. So you can say, oh, Chavez is to blame or Maduro's to blame because he maintained that policy for years and years when it was clearly hurting Venezuela economically. That's true. And I think has to be acknowledged, but it was also in response to U.S.-backed efforts to overthrow Chavez. And so that has to be acknowledged as, as well. Oil dependency is another factor in the crisis. So in 2014, the price of oil globally fell by you know, about two thirds in a, a six month period. And that had a really big effect on Venezuela because it's an oil dependent economy. So that is, you know, not like directly, I don't think the U.S. directly um, led to the price of oil falling, although some of the policies in the U.S. certainly contributed to it, you know, looking for uh, natural gas and oil and U.S. soil territory had something to do with it. But, you know, more complicated factor. But then U.S. sanctions are very, very clearly an important reason for the crisis. So in 2015, U.S. sanctions on Venezuela uh, were implemented uh, under Obama. I think he announced it. I think it's in December 2014, although I'll have to double check that Obama opened to Cuba. And on the very same week, he closed to Venezuela. So it was a sort of blatantly political move to satisfy the sort of right wing uh, anti-Venezuela, anti-Castro community in Florida. So if you're going to open up to Cuba, you have to do something to balance that out in the rhetoric of, you know, supporting imperialists. So they did start to tighten the reins on Venezuela. Critics will say that the sanctions were only on individuals, but they're secondary effects. And there's very clear evidence that, you know, businesses and banks in the U.S. and Europe saw a clear signal, don't do business with Venezuela. And there's actually evidence that U.S. intervened you know, U.S. officials interfered behind the scenes and basically told them, don't do business with Venezuela. So Venezuela became a country that had limited access to finance going back to 2015. Um, this was really strengthened under Trump. I mean, in 2017 and then really in 2019 with oil sanctions, they effectively put a stranglehold on the Venezuelan economy. So I would say, just to shorten the answer a little bit, that you know, U.S. sanctions have had a very important impact on Venezuela and its crisis going back to at least 2015. But from 2017 on, and without a doubt from 2019 on, the U.S. sanction regime has been one of, if not the most important reason for the crisis and the severity of the crisis in Venezuela. So, you know, Venezuela's economy has almost completely collapsed. I mean, we're looking at close to 100% reduction in GDP over the last like eight years or so. I mean, the last I checked, solid number. It was at least 75%, but I've seen people talk about it as, you know, almost hundred uh, percent reduction in Venezuela's economy. And the U.S. has played a very, very important role. I mean, they are not allowing Venezuela to trade with businesses in the U.S., with banks in the U.S., with the U.S. government, or with other businesses around the world. And businesses don't want to lose access to the U.S. market. So they're very careful not to run afoul of the U.S. sanctions regime, which puts Venezuela in an incredibly isolated spot. And that has been a huge, huge, huge contributing factor to the devastation of the economy, the humanitarian crisis, the out-migration of 5 million Venezuelans. So the U.S. has certainly played a fundamental role in Venezuela's current crisis. Yeah, um, 
definitely i can totally see how the u.s would contribute to the really failing economy of venezuela that's still continuing today and now with the current presidential crisis the u.s is strongly backing juan guiado along with many other western nations as you probably know while countries like china and russia support maduro and as you probably already know as well both guiado and maduro are left-wing are they're both left-wing leaders which is odd because the U.S.'s history of intervention in Latin America has shown, similar to Bolivia, that it has a tendency to actually oppose left-wing leaders like Guido. So I guess what do you think is pushing the U.S. to support Guido, even though he's considered a left-wing leader? Yeah, so I would disagree with the idea that Guido is a left-wing leader. Um, and it may be the case that he's tried to portray himself that way on the international scene, but I think he's clearly a right-wing leader. I mean, the policies, you know, if you look at, there's some articles in NACLA, uh, which is one of the best, you know, resources for that, uh, for Latin American coverage. Um, and it shows that Guaido's economic, proposed economic policies were a total return to neoliberalism. And he's openly backed U.S. intervention within Venezuela. He's openly, you know, embraced the far-right elements within the Venezuelan opposition. So, you know, there's a dance, there's a way in which some of these opposition leaders on the international scene try to portray themselves as left-wing, but uh, I think it's pure rhetoric. And I actually haven't seen that for Guaido, although I'll be interested to see if, you know, if he is calling himself a leftist, it's just bogus. <laughs> He's not at all. So, you know, the U.S., uh, it was just strategically really stupid and <laughs> almost like, uh, crazy. I mean, supporting Guaido. So he is in Janine Anya's company in that he declared himself president of Venezuela 2019. And what is uh, important to know is that this happened immediately after he was on the phone with Vice President Mike Pence. And it was incredibly surprising to all of the opposition in Venezuela. So the U.S. did not try to get broad support amongst the Venezuelan opposition. They simply tried this propping up an unknown politician who is from a party that is definitely considered a far-right party within uh, Venezuela, Voluntad Popular. Uh, Leopoldo Lopez is the sort of mentor of Juan Guaido, and he's, you know, actually was kicked out of another center-right party because he was too far to the right. So Guaido's entire sort of trajectory is on the right within Venezuela. And, you know, it's been a disastrous policy. It's just led to further and further stalemate within Venezuela. It's really prevented the opposition from consolidating around a positive program that speaks to the needs of the Venezuelan people. There's so many things to criticize Maduro for. Um, his economic management, despite all the constraints he's under, has been disastrous. He's really taken Venezuela in an authoritarian direction, consolidating a fraudulent electoral regime, you know, committing egregious human rights abuses, you know, horrible sort of police violence um, under his watch. A lot of political persecution has happened. This is in the context of an incredible effort to overthrow him. So it's not like it's happening in a vacuum, but there, you know, to put it in political science terms, there would be an opportunity for the opposition to, you know, criticize Maduro for all these things and get a lot of support. And at, at, at moments, Guaido had a lot of support, but he has simply had a, you know, Maduro must go, Maduro must go, Maduro must go line. And he hasn't talked uh, much at all about any program for economic recovery within Venezuela, any program for meeting the humanitarian crisis. And the U.S. has been backing him, you know, over and over again. It's incredibly disappointing that the Biden administration continues to back Guaido because the European Union actually said he's no longer even elected to parliament in Venezuela. So he's not, he doesn't have any legitimate claim on the presidency. If, you know, they thought he did, I don't, 
I think that's ridiculous. He never had any legitimate claim on the presidency. It's just a totally skewed logic by which he proclaimed himself president. But, you know, the, the fact that Biden is still supporting him, it's really, really disappointing. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Why exactly do you think Guaido would specifically purport himself to be a, a left-wing like leader in the international scene? If it, it seems like he is clearly like a right-wing politician, especially to most Venezuelan people back home. And so do you think that there is like a strategic reason for wanting to be seen as like a left-wing politician? Like, is there like implications for support on the international scene? Or was it kind of just like a misconstruction? Because, you know, the U.S. has tended to get a lot of information wrong in the past. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen the specific claim, so I'd have to evaluate how he's doing it. But, you know, other politicians who are on the right side of the Venezuelan spectrum have also portrayed themselves as sort of leftists. Um, so Enrique Capriles, who is from a center-right party, Primera Justicia, um, compared himself to Lula, who is the left-wing president of Brazil um, and may become the future president again of Brazil. So there's a history of doing that in part because during the left turn, this, you know, 20-some year period in, in Latin America's recent history, when the left was in power in many countries, there was a sort of pull to the left. And so there was a uh, pressure on politicians of the center and the right to portray themselves as more left-wing than they actually were. So it could be that that's part of it. It could also be that, you know, Guaido is trying to win support from, you know, nominally left parties in Europe. So there's parties in Spain and Italy and elsewhere that I think he's reached out to. And so, you know, that could be part of it. Although I know he has, you know, as far as I know, he fairly strong ties to the, the Pepe. I can't remember the name of the party, but um, there's a fairly right-wing party in, in Spain that has had, you know, close ties to the Venezuelan opposition. So I'm not sure. It's a great question. It's a, you know, fascinating one, but I don't have a good answer for that one. Thank you, though. Thank you for that background. No worries. Thank you. Yeah, it is quite confusing um, when we do our research. And he's purported to be a socialist by most media outlets, but now we're learning that he's, most of his actual policy is right wing. So I guess also in relation to the opposition, the U.S. sanctions on Venezuela have certainly had impacts on the country's economy, especially given the reliance on oil. What kind of humanitarian impacts do you think U.S. support for the opposition has had on the country? And what kind of support has the U.S. given to the opposition, um, be it like military help or just any political support in general? Yeah, some of that, I think, I don't know. And I, I would imagine it's not publicly known. So the U.S. support for the military, I imagine they've continuously been trying to foment divisions, but not with a whole lot of success. I mean, there's you know, Guaido tried to uh, spark a military coup, I think it was April 2019, a few months after he had proclaimed himself president, and it utterly failed. I mean, there was a couple, maybe a couple hundred soldiers who were detained afterwards with no high-level military officials whatsoever. But, you know, the U.S. has certainly poured millions of dollars over the years to the Venezuelan opposition. I think more importantly for the humanitarian crisis, by supporting the hard right elements within the Venezuelan opposition, they have prevented dialogue between the government and the opposition, which is what Venezuela badly needs. So, you know, they need some sort of power sharing government. Um, Maduro is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And that is an unfortunate but true reality within Venezuela. And so there has to be some sort of transitional, you know, movement and dialogue and negotiations, which have repeatedly been attempted, have been scuttled by the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is literally told the opposition, just walk away, walk away, don't actually get involved. And there's, you know, criticisms one can and should make of the Maduro administration as well. But the U.S. role in that, I think, is truly atrocious. And then, you know, even more directly, the sanctions regime has been 
you know, certainly in the last couple of years, I would say it's uh, undoubtedly the number one factor behind the, you know, horrifying humanitarian situation within the country. So the U.S., it just needs a total change of policy if they actually actually want to help Venezuelans. So just kind of going off of like what you pretty much just said, and also just relating, I guess, circling back to like our last discussion about Bolivia um, and the last question we asked then, like, do you think that there is a way for the U.S. to move forward in order to, I guess, like somewhat rectify like the Venezuelan economic crisis, a lot of which U.S. policy um, resulted in? Because we know that like in a 2018 article that you published, Stop Talking About Coups, you said that the U.S. should keep its hands off of Venezuela, a very reasonable viewpoint, as we said, considering the history. And now that there is a new administration put in and you have expressly disapproval with the way that Biden has been handling it, do you think they should do a pivot and like change their policy regarding what they're trying to pursue in the country? Or just kind of like, as you said, that they also should do with Bolivia, like hands off, let the country do what it needs to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, you know, I think if the U.S. stopped sanctions on Venezuela and they stopped supporting the far-right opposition, Maduro would face a broad-based opposition movement within Venezuela. Poor people who are not on the far-right, many of whom were, you know, fervent Chavistas or you know, consistent voters of Chavismo are disgusted with Maduro. They're fed up with the policies. They're fed up with the repression. They're fed up with the lack of economic growth. And if uh, if there wasn't sanction regime on Venezuela, that would quickly lead to a, a massive, in my view, a massive protest movement against Maduro. But because there's a sanctioned regime, Maduro can reasonably and actually accurately point to the sanctions as a leading cause of the crisis. And that buys him more legitimacy than he otherwise would have. So I think that there's, you know, it's just an incredibly unfortunate, but also stupid (laughs) strategically uh, policy for the U.S. uh, to go after. I mean, one would have to assume that there's political reasons for the policy that don't have anything to do with helping Venezuela, but have a lot to do with trying to win Florida uh, in the Electoral College. And I'm sure that the Biden administration is paying attention to the conservative Latino vote Uh, within Florida, and they're sort of worried about losing that to the Republicans. Ironically, I mean, they lost Florida pretty badly in the last election, so they can still win the White House, they can still win the Senate without Florida, but that's been an important factor. Um, And I think you you have to pay attention to the sort of domestic political angle to really understand U.S. policy. Yeah, definitely. I never actually considered that about how there is like a domestic like action aspect of like why they would pursue the specific policy in Venezuela. So, so thank you for that, that context. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that Florida obviously being a really huge swing state um, that can change the tide of elections is a huge factor in that for the Biden administration. Like you said, they can still win the white house and, and the Senate without it. So I'm wondering maybe um, that could shape the Biden administration administration's position in the future, but um, those are all the questions that we have today. Again, Pro- Professor Hedlund, we just want to reiterate our gratitude. All right, sure. Yeah, pleasure speaking with you. Best of luck. Mm-hmm.